The work of Jesus Christ is our hope and our salvation. That's the message we find in Paul's letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians. And so we continue this summer series. And let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Our hope is found in the work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has rescued us. God has turned us from idols to serve him, the living and true God. And we see in these final chapters of Thessalonians that Paul is addressing the challenges, the questions, the, even the doubts that the Thessalonian church faced. And these are words not merely to instruct them, but God's living word to instruct us. And so listen, as I read, if you're, if you're looking for this passage, it's near the back of your Bible. You can find it on page 1,171 in the Bibles that are there on the pew for your use. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Let's bow our heads as I pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray that that truth would, would change the way we live, the way we think, the way we act. Lord, for those that listen to your word without faith in Jesus Christ today, without acknowledging him to be the Savior and Lord, I pray that your word would have a radical impact of bringing spiritual life where there has been none. Lord, that those who hear your word proclaimed would trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for us, your church, those who, have, who claim to be followers of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would change the way that we think and the way that we act in light of the truths we hear today. Lord, that we would be bold in our witness for Jesus Christ, that we would boldly announce what we believe, what we know to be true, that Jesus died and rose again. And so, Lord, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Does your confession of faith impact the way you view the realities of life? Does what you say you believe give you any hope? Or do you at times feel like your faith is merely empty words? It's something you say, it's something you repeat, it's something you even sing on Sundays, but you wonder what difference it really makes. Because you and I have heard that religion is the opiate of the masses, that it merely numbs us to the pain of life. It offers nothing true or real, but simply a false sense of hope. Do you, do you sometimes wonder if even the faith, the faith perhaps that you've held since childhood, is really just that, merely empty words. 
Does your confession, does what you say you believe, change your life? The Thessalonian believers in the first century, and remember, this is, this is in the year about 52, the, the, the first churches being planted in the years immediately after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they, they had the same kinds of doubts that you and I might have. And Paul, we see in these final chapters, is writing to them, wanting them to understand something that, that it's clear they were confused about. Timothy has come back from Thessalonica with a report about the way they've been behaving. And so we saw at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul give them commands about the ways in which they should live, the, way, the ways in which they should avoid sexual immorality. We saw last week, Tom showed us the, the commands about loving one another. And then here, Paul moves into this theological question about death and resurrection and the return of Christ. Confusing questions for them. Because they face the problem of death and grief. That's what Paul is saying when he uses that euphemism about those who fall asleep. That we see it repeated in verses 13, 14, and 15. But, but he makes clear, in case you were confused as to what is he really talking about? Is he just talking about a, a nightly rest? No, he's talking, verse 16, about those who are dead. It's a euphemism that matches some of the euphemisms we'd use today those who have fallen asleep. And Paul's concern, verse 13, look there with me, is that he doesn't want Christians, the Christians in Thessalonica, to, to be ignorant about death, or look at the end of verse 13, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. I mean, Paul is writing to this church in, in, in what we, it's today modern-day Greece, but was part of that ancient Greco-Roman world where there was very little hope, where death was merely the end. One of the, the poets of the time, and this would then get repeated on people's tombstones, said this, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. You see, he's describing what's the cycle of life. Well, there was a time before I was born and when I was not. Then I was, but I am not any longer, and I care not. It was said even more directly by, by another, hopes are for the living. The dead are without hope. Stated matter-of-factly, as if this is the better way to live. This is the way of the philosophers. This is the way of the great minds. And it's the same kind of challenge that you and I live with today. What hope do we have? Natalie Taylor's memoir chronicles her grief as a 25-year-old widow. I mentioned her actually last month in, in the, the horrible things, that the platitudes that people offered to her at her husband's funeral. But in the months that follow, she, she struggles to find hope, to find meaning, to find purpose in, in life. And so she gets the new Harry Potter novel, the last in the series, and, and she rereads a chapter, she says, which resonated with her. She, she writes, at the conclusion of the last book, Harry, this fictional character, this wizard, is nearly killed. But instead of dying, he's suddenly transported to a deserted train station, and he's reunited with Dumbledore, his hero, who was killed fighting the book's villain. Dumbledore sits with Harry 
and tells him all the things that Harry doesn't understand about life and death and finding his way. And right before the scene closes, Dumbledore gives Harry one last piece of advice. Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living. And above all, those who live without love. Natalie describes her reaction to this. She says, I read that chapter at least 15 times. It's the only thing that makes any sense to me. Yet it's clearly fiction. It offers no real anchor. It can't offer any real hope. And the sadness and the sorrow in this is that is that the imagery of that chapter could mean so much more. The title of the chapter was, yes, the name of a train station in London, but chosen by the author for its symbolic purpose. The title, The King's Cross. See, there, there was more there than Natalie could even see, pointing us as Christians to the real King's Cross, the cross of Jesus Christ on which he gave his life. But for Natalie, a fictional account was the only thing that made any sense of her world in the, in the horror of losing her husband. But the hopelessness is not merely for those enchanted by fiction. We can think of the way some of the other religions of the world describe death as merely an illusion, something that, that you, you just need to come to terms with. Or, or, or a cycle of, of life and reincarnation to, to try and make sense of, of what's going on. Or maybe even if you're not religious at all, you have a more scientific view of the world. And so you look for material explanations to the big questions of life. And you probably then could end up repeating that ancient dogma. I was not. I was. I am not, I care not. See, we still live in a world where those without Christ live without any hope, where death itself challenges the very core of who we are. So today, do you, do you have hope? And for those of us that consider ourselves Christians, we may have had conversations with friends or neighbors, and, and they don't appear interested, and we think, we think or, or maybe we haven't even had the conversation because we just assume, well, they won't be interested in this. Well, maybe as those with hope, we should press past those initial resistances to gospel conversations and force people to wrestle with the deep questions of life. Where is your ultimate hope? What meaning does your life have? What hope is there for you? Because Paul is wanting the believers in Thessalonica not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And so he offers the promise that Jesus Christ will come again. That's the hope he's offering to these believers, that Jesus will come again. He's wanting them to understand that, that if you die before the return of Christ, and remember, we're within a generation of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven at the time at which Paul wrote. This is probably the first of the New Testament documents written down. And Paul is, has this eager anticipation that Christ is coming soon, an anticipation you and I are meant to still have today, that Christ's return is imminent. Christ is coming. 
And so then the question is raised, but what about the Christians who in the last 18 years or 20 years have died? Are they left out of this hope? Are they lost forever? Is there no resurrection hope for them? Will they miss out on the return of Jesus Christ? And Paul says, no. By the, by the very words of Jesus Christ himself, that's verse 15, referencing us back to the Gospels and the announcement when Jesus himself says he will return. It's the promise that, that those who are alive at the return of Christ and are found in Christ by faith, they will be with Christ. But same is true for those who are dead. Paul is saying the dead will be raised to life. Jesus is coming again. And look at verse 16. We, we have the announcement that the, the Lord is coming. And look at the last phrase of verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So even those lost in death are not apart from Christ. Did you, did you hear it? The dead in Christ. Even death cannot separate you if you've put your trust in Christ. Even death cannot separate you from the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ. You belong to Christ even in death. There is hope for you today. And that's the kind of hope that as a, that as a preacher of the gospel, I have the privilege for you who are church members who have professed faith in Christ at your funeral, announcing to your friends and family gathered that you are dead in Christ. And your resurrection is sure and certain. But apart from Christ, there is no hope. And Paul describes what will take place. Look at verse 17. He says, after that, after the dead in Christ are raised, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I mean, this is the picture, which is traditionally given the, the phrase, the rapture. It comes from the Latin translation of this verse, that, 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 that we who believe are raptured to meet Christ. And so in, in maybe your view of this, this is the, the time in which you, you disappear from earth and that you go with Jesus into heaven. But that's, that's not the imagery that's, that's displayed here. That phrase, to meet the Lord, is actually a, a phrase, a, a technical term in Greek. A description of, of the dignitaries uh, or the, the citizens of a city, the leading men and women of the city. When a, when a dignitary comes and you are in your city and you see him far off, you go out to meet him and then to escort him back into the city. So you don't want his first interaction, the, the emperor or his, his, his official emissary, you don't want his first interaction to be with the beggars on the streets, the the riffraff around the, the, the edges of the city. No, you want his first interaction to be with the, the leading men of the city, and so they go out to meet him and escort him in. Actually, that's the same word that Luke uses in, in the, the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, when Paul is coming to Rome, and the Christians in Rome go out to meet him. They don't go out to meet him and then go back where he came from. It's, this is not an image of, of going to meet Jesus and then he turns around and goes back to heaven. No, this is the image of Jesus is coming to earth. And so like the Christians in Rome went to meet Paul and then bring him in. So we who are, who are alive at the return of Christ, even the, those of us who die in Christ, will be raised to go out and meet Christ and then return, continue his coming to earth. This is the promise of the return of Christ. It's like when you have guests that come to your house, that you're out-of-town guests and you've eagerly awaited for them, or maybe you have a child in your house who, who sits at the window, and as soon as they pull up at the curb, 
the door flings open and you run out to, to wrap your arms around them at the curb, but you don't then get in their car and drive the hundreds of miles back to their house. No, you hug them and then you drag them inside with you. You keep going the direction they were going. And that's the image Paul is giving. We who are, who are in Christ will meet Christ on his return. We will go out to meet him and then come back with him. This is not some secret rapture that will take place. This is, and, and sometimes we get lost in these kinds of details. We want to we see what the chart looks like for the end of history, of, of how many years will it be and what year will happen and, and what's going on in the news on the other side of the world today that might inform us. No, that's, that's not what this is meant to do. This will be a big public announcement. I mean, look at verse 16. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. If, if you were trying to pick an image of how would we make this the, the noisiest, loudest, most public display possible, with the command of Jesus Christ himself, with his angels in front of him, with the trumpet call from heaven, will announce the coming of the king. This is not a secret event. This is the return of Jesus Christ, the king of heaven and earth, coming to be with his people. And so we're not meant to get lost in the, the details of trying to figure out when, and actually next week we'll see that, no, you're not meant to know when it's going to happen. You're meant to be ready as if it's imminent. It could be right now, today, before this service ends. But what's the, what's the reason? Why is Paul telling the believers in Thessalonica this? Look at verse 17 again, the end, that, that final phrase. When Christ returns and so we will be with the Lord forever. Jesus is coming again. He is your true hope. This is our great hope, that Jesus Christ will be with us forever. And Paul, in case we miss it, what's the reason he's talking about the return of Christ? Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, this shouldn't make you anxious unless you were found outside of Christ. If you've not put your trust in Christ, then there should be some anxiety when Jesus Christ comes as the king of heaven and earth to judge the living and the dead. There is danger for you, but if you are found in Christ, then this is a word of hope, a word of encouragement. That's how we should speak about the return of Christ. Jesus is coming again. You will be with him forever. He is your king. But is that is that enough? Is a future promise enough for us right now? Will that give us confidence, even in the face of death itself? See, Paul anchors the future coming of Christ to what Christ has already done. Look back at verse 14. This is where Paul began this discussion. He doesn't want the Thessalonians to be in ignorance. So verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, let me say it again because this is the core fundamental truth of Christian faith, one that sometimes sounds so familiar to us that we might miss it. Jesus died and rose again. This is your sure and certain hope. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived a life of perfect obedience, died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, but this Jesus is not dead. 
Jesus Christ rose again. And because that historical fact is true, God has already accomplished it, then what does Paul say? And so, because this we know to be true, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Because Jesus died and rose again, your resurrection is certain. This is the anchor for your faith. And so, so if you have questions about Christianity, about the way Christians are called to live, if you look back at, at the beginning of chapter 4, if you were here for that sermon and you think that's really what Paul expects of Christians in their sexual moral behavior, I, just, I can't live like that in the modern world. If you have questions about Christianity around the edges, what it should look like, actually the, the thing you need to do is wrestle with this core truth. Jesus died and rose again. If that is true, then everything about your life should change. And actually, Paul, interestingly here, uses a word for Jesus being raised again, a a word that he doesn't use in his letters. It's the word that we would get the name Anastasia from, a name which means resurrection. But it's not a a usual word for the apostle Paul, which, which commentators then say, it seems what Paul is doing is he's quoting a creed or a a testimony of faith that the Thessalonian believers already knew. He's using an unusual word from his letters because he's, he's quoting the core Christian creed. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means we believe Jesus died and rose again. That is the central claim of the Christian gospel. And because that is true, Jesus will come again and we will be raised to new life. That is our hope. See, when you and I hear this message, then we get to share this great news. It's the word of encouragement from brother to brother in the church. As you struggle through the sorrows of life, remember, Jesus is coming again. As you wrestle with pain and sickness and death itself, remember, Jesus is coming again. We will be with Jesus forever. See, your hope in life is not that your circumstances will get better, not that you'll be able to work hard enough to to pull yourself out of the hole that you're in. No, I mean, maybe you can do that because you live in America. I mean, that's the American dream. But your real ultimate hope when facing death is that Jesus is coming again. See, that's the good news you and I have the, the joy of announcing. He's coming. He's coming. As a family, we had the excitement when our youngest Samuel was added to our family. We, he was adopted. He was born in South Korea, and, and we were matched with him. We were given his picture and told, this is your son. But all that's all we had was just a picture and his name, his date of birth, his weight in kilograms. We had to convert it. But then we had to wait. And what we thought would be a very short wait became a longer wait as delays in paperwork and bureaucracy took time. But then finally, we got the news he's coming home. He's coming home. And that, I mean, that's the kind of news that we announced to everyone we knew. You heard it from us, because that's all we could talk about. He's, he's coming home, and we had the privilege as his parents of going and meeting him, meeting the foster family that had cared and loved for him, and bringing him home 
with us. See, that's the kind of joy and excitement you and I should have when we hear that message. Jesus is coming. He's, he's coming. He's really coming. He will be with us forever. And so you and I get to announce that message to a world desperate for hope, a world that has no other anchor to hold on to except maybe some, some made-up fantasy of their, their own concoction. But you and I have a true and reasonable and meaningful and real hope. Jesus Christ is coming again. We will be with him. We have the joy of going to meet him and then coming with him home. Jesus, the risen Savior, is coming again. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Jesus is risen. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Let's bow in prayer as we come to the table of our risen Lord. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of this gospel message. Lord, I pray that as this truth was meant to be central to the Christians in the first century, that it would be central to our understanding of the hope of the gospel. That we believe Jesus Christ died. We believe Jesus Christ rose again. And we believe that Jesus Christ is coming. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to this table, you would strengthen us. Lord, those that don't have faith, that they would observe, that they would watch what you are doing in your church. And that we who have faith in Christ would be strengthened in the hope of the gospel by the power of your word. And so we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.